Hello and welcome to the CCF Iowa podcast. You're listening to a message that was part of our Tuesday night worship services that takes place each week on the campuses of University of Northern Iowa, Iowa State University, and the University of Iowa. This year's theme is As You Go. So we'll be taking a look at the book of Acts and we will be exploring how just as God called the early church, he is calling us today to go. And as Jesus ascends into heaven and we're introduced to the Holy Spirit, we're given instructions as we go. So here's a message presented by one of our campus ministers. Welcome back to the CCF podcast. Our session is going to be focused in on Acts chapter 3, and specifically the first 10 verses of Acts chapter 3. And we're entitling this session, As You Go, Be Jesus. Because Acts chapter 3 follows Acts chapter 2, as numbers tend to work that way. But it's following up on on the story of Pentecost and the sermon that Peter preached and how 3,000 people... uh, repented and 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 were baptized and were added to to the number of the apostles that day and then it describes what the apostles and those 3000 new believers did and how they lived and how they listened to the apostles teaching and met together in one another's homes and they prayed and they kept going back to the temple courts to worship and and so you've you've got this really cool description that is like the best thing, the best way that the church should be living and operating. Um, and, and then chapter 3 starts telling about some some miracles that happen. Um, so let's get into the text, and then I'm going to tell you a little bit more about uh, what I think about miracles. This is Acts chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with him, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So this is one of the early miracles that happens in Acts. Uh, again, depending on how you define miracles, um, you, you could call the, the speaking in tongues uh, thing that happens from Acts chapter 2 as a miracle. You could you'd call Jesus ascending into heaven as a miracle. Um, the thing is, I, I find it hard to define miracles because there are a lot of things that God does each and every day that if we didn't understand them or at least know that they always happen, we'd probably say we're pretty miraculous. Um, I, I think, and honestly, the very nature of the sun rising every day uh, is it, a sense. It definitely fills me with wonder and amazement, much like the people who witnessed this particular miracle. But the other thing about miracles is that Jesus, you know, talks about how the disciples are going to do even more than he did. And, and so it, it shouldn't necessarily be surprising that the disciples are able to heal someone who, who was lame from birth. Um, because Jesus did those kind of things. He, he healed people that were blind from birth and he healed, healed paralyzed and lame and, 
and rose the dead even. Um, and so it shouldn't surprise us necessarily to see the disciples doing these kinds of things. But one of the things that I think is important to note is that when when Jesus was alive and when he healed, he didn't necessarily heal everyone that he could. Um, you know, if, if we have that theology that Jesus is uh, is God, he's he is all powerful. He has the, the traits and characteristics of God. He just doesn't always, you know, display them or make them known. Um, if we believe that about Jesus, then I think we could pretty definitively say that if Jesus wanted to, he could heal everyone. Um, but he's got reasons why he doesn't, he heals some and he doesn't heal others. And, and sometimes there's some scriptural defense that you can find for that and others. Uh, you, you don't really know for sure. But but one thing I do know is that when we do see Jesus heal people, there tends to be a point that he's trying to make to his disciples, that he has a desire to teach them some sort of lesson from it or show them some kind of aspect of his character. Um, there's always something to be learned from in the healing that happens. And so I think um, for the healings that are noted in Scripture— and it's also possible that Jesus healed a whole lot more people than we even knew, and they just weren't always written down. I don't know. Um, but what I do know is that when we find healings that happen in Scripture, there's a lesson to be learned from them. And so I think we can apply the same kind of logic and, and assumptions there for Jesus, that uh, for the disciples, as we did about Jesus, that if the disciples are he healing someone, there should be a lesson um, and, and you have a couple statements here, like Peter talks about, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. And that's when he heals him and says, rise up and walk. And, and so, you know, you, you can maybe grab from that, that, um, that faith is, is greater than money, that it's not about having silver and gold. What's more important is, is following Jesus. And that has the ability to actually heal people and truly help people. And instead of just um, some kind of charity and alms. That's a possible lesson. Uh, we also um, see Peter and John immediately after this, they bring the guy into the the temple and, and they talk to this crowd of people that's there. And, and so he's able to preach a sermon and it's kind of like caused a stir and people have noticed what's going on. And so it might be, you know, you could maybe say that, like, they kind of did this healing in order to get a crowd together so they could preach a sermon, and and they wanted to see a lot of people come to Jesus, and so they kind of created this spectacle, um, which isn't at all how I take the disciples uh, to be acting, um, and they're not wanting to make a spectacle out of people that were that were healed. So I don't know if that's the lesson that we should learn, but I, you can maybe try to take that lesson from it. Um what I think is that scripture generally, especially the way that, that Jesus taught, um, and we see this when we study the Old Testament as well, that there are lessons that we maybe not, uh, that are maybe not readily accessible to us on just a surface level reading of the story. Um, all those previous lessons I talked about were just from grabbing the words that were there in scripture. And I think a lot of times there's extra things that have been put there by, by the author of the book that you've got to dig in um, because 
that's kind of the ideal of the of the Jewish rabbinical style of teaching that happened um, not only at this point in time, but just kind of the whole history of Judaism is their writings, their teachings from their teachers are always wanting you to dig further into the text and get to know about more of the rest of scripture and it calls back to text and and very much you know cares about those kind of things that you're studying. Um, today we're going to be digging deep, um, not using as much text, but kind of using some additional research and and things that I've encountered while studying this particular text. And, and I think it has some kind of cool things to say about this particular healing and maybe some of the lessons that Peter and John were trying to teach through it. So some of the things we want to look for when we're trying to find kind of where our, our signposts of where to dig, where we want to look deeper is um, things that repeat or things that have extra detail, um, things that just kind of maybe stick out for being a little, huh, why did why did the author say it that way? Or why did they say this particular thing? Or I'm not sure if I entirely get what he's saying here. Those are usually places where you want to dig in and and look more and deeper. And so the the main thing that sticks out to me from these 10 verses is the fact that in verse 2 and verse 10 it talks about a gate called beautiful or um the beautiful gate. And and the thing about that that sticks out is the the term beautiful gate is not like one of the official names of any of the gates of the temple. Um, many of the gates actually had given names and they're, they're talked about even in the Old Testament when, when the construction of the temple is talked about, or they're referenced in other places in, in the prophets or um, other places where there's references made to the temple. They give names of certain gates and, and we've been able to piece together with archaeology and with studies of text and other kinds of things, kind of the names of all the different gates and um and sometimes those are just locational. You've got like an upper gate and a lower gate. Sometimes it's like related to the gates where the sacrifices came in. There's like a sheep gate. And and sometimes they've got more poetic names to them. But regardless, this reference here in Acts 3 is the only time that beautiful gate ever shows up. And because of that, um, we haven't actually been able to figure out which gate this is. There's some speculation. There's some... Um, some things that have been offered by different scholars, but it's not one of those things that we have great agreement upon that that I would even feel comfortable saying, well, the beautiful gate is this specific gate. And the reason I believe that's the case is because beautiful gate here is meant to be a metaphor and not so much refer to the specific gate that the that the beggar is hanging out at, but is supposed to refer to something more than that. Because remember, Acts is written in Greek. And the Greek word for beautiful here, and I know I'm going to mispronounce this, is horaya. And that's a word that does, does mean beautiful, can be translated that way, but it's most often used of like fruit that's in season. It's, it's an idea of something being ripe. Um, that that it's it's beautiful because it's the right time to eat the fruit and that's what makes it beautiful because if you think about it like fruit that's not quite ripe yet doesn't look nearly as appealing as 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 ripe fruit does and some of that is just because of our associations with 
previous experiences of taste and flavor. And we know, you know, with fruits that we know well, we know what they look like when they're ripe and we know what they look like when they're not ripe. And it's definitely going to be more appealing looking at a ripe fruit. That's kind of the idea that's happening here in this beautiful gate, that it's about a timeliness um, that that beauty comes. So it's almost like the gate called right place, right time. And that, to me, starts to change the meaning of this story because uh, the beggar is hanging out at the right place, right time. Maybe that's referring to the fact that he's at the temple at the specific hour of prayer, the ninth hour. Um, the, the temple services would have different hours, would, would be parts of different services or mean different things. Um, I, I mean, Peter and John are going to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. So it's it's likely to assume that there would be lots of people that were specifically headed to the temple for this specific time of prayer. And I, I haven't researched this to make sure to know exactly um, what the ninth hour of prayer was supposed to be in the temple. But it's possible that this is the time that you're supposed to pray for the needy among you. Or maybe the prayers would be focused more, you know, specifically on how can the community be charitable and reaching out. And so maybe the gate is right place, right time, because the beggar had had been thinking through, hey, this is the perfect time to be at the temple. They're going to be praying and thinking about charity, and that would be a great time to be positioned asking for alms. It's right when people were thinking about giving money to the poor and, hey, look, poor guy, you could help me out. Maybe that's what it's, you know, that right place, right time. Or maybe it's saying it's it's the gate of the right place, right time, because he was there when Peter and John were there, and they actually had something more than they could offer him. Even if he wasn't there for that purpose, or that's not what his plan was, that he was there at the right place, right time, so that the Holy Spirit could do something powerful to transform his life and and to help him to walk. And that's... That seems to be a pretty cool message where it's fitting, where he's at the right place, right time for that. And then I think about another aspect maybe to be remembering is kind of the way the temple is structured. So we've been talking about how there's these gates um, that lead to the outside. And the next thing that happens is after they heal the the beggar, they take him into um, Solomon's portico. Um, which is another area of the temple. So they would have gone through that gate and and into this um, inner court. And, and the thing about the temple is the way that it's structured is, is that these gates kind of separate these different courts. And the further you go in, kind of the more holy, the more select um, the place is. And so there's only certain people that can go into each gate. So the very outer part of the temple, like everybody's cool to go there. The outermost court of the temple is known as the Gentiles court because that's where even Gentiles can be. But then you walk in through a gate from the Gentiles court and you proceed to the women's court. Now Solomon's portico where they take the the man that they healed um, is is part of what's called the women's court because the next stage from the Gentiles court inward is is the place where women can be, but you need to be Jewish because no Gentiles can go past that gate, that court. And then the next gate in um, is is basically like the Jewish males court. I don't know the exact name for it, but 
um, women could, couldn't come in any further. And then you get further in from that one. It's only priests can be there. And then you get further in from that one and you uh, eventually get to what's known as the Holy of Holies, the place where God's presence is. And only the high priest can go there on specific days. Uh, it's part of specific, um, duties that he has to offer specific sacrifices. And so like nobody's supposed to go into the Holy of Holies. And it's even, you know, said that if, if the wrong person, the wrong kind of person is in the Holy of Holies, um, that, that they will die. And then I, I think there's kind of an extension of, well, if that applies to the Holy of Holies, maybe that applies for the other courts as well. And so they said that these really strict ideas of who can go where, um, because they don't want those people to die for going somewhere that they were not supposed to be not allowed to go. Um, and so that makes me wonder because there's another thing that that's happening around this time where people who are, who are disabled, um, who are handicapped have any kind of, of those kind of things are, are viewed as, as being unclean or, impure and so there's there's kind of this perception that that the reason that especially people who are born that way that the reason that they are that way is is related to some kind of sin issue and usually it's thought of even some kind of sin issue that occurred in their family there's a discussion with uh, with a man born blind where they're they're asking so whose fault is it that this guy is blind was it some sin of his was it a sin of his parents like, what's the deal? And they're trying to figure out the sin issue that causes the blindness. And then he ends up being healed um, of that blindness. Because, And then uh, I believe this is a Jesus story as opposed to a disciple story. And then Jesus points out, like, it's not really about a sin issue. Um, we just need to be taking care of people and that kind of stuff. But that's a different story. This story. So we've got uh, a, a lame man who's sitting at a, at the beautiful gate. Um, which from what we can tell from, you know, they go through that gate and the next place they go to is Solomon's portico, part of the court of women, that he was, you know, outside in the Gentile court. And maybe they were okay with him being out there. But because he's lame, maybe no one really wanted him to be in the next court of the temple because they thought he's a little bit too impure. We don't know what his sin issue was that caused him to be lame from birth, um, whose fault it is. But but we don't necessarily want him here. And so it's possible um, that he's never been into this part of the temple before, that he's never even been to Solomon's portico. Um, and, and which when the disciples are here, that's a place that they primarily gather. Um, that's a place where not only here, but I, there's other places in scripture where it talks about them gathering, that, like that's their gathering place in the temple. And that's where they, they preach. And, and part of the reason is that is at this stage in Acts, um, the, the disciples don't seem to acknowledge or see that Jesus' message is actually for the Gentiles as well. That kind of comes later. Peter has a vision and then he goes, wait a second, maybe this message is for the Gentiles too. So it makes sense for them to do most of their preaching and interacting with people in in the court um in the women's court as opposed to the gentiles court because the thing about it too is in the women's court um that's like the most inclusive place they could be um 
without also preaching to Gentiles because they didn't believe that's where their message was supposed to go. And so I think it's it's interesting to see the early church here is choosing to be in the place that is the most inclusive, that's still a holy place, that's still a sacred place. But they want to be with as many people as they can because this is a message that's for everyone. And and they're willing to even heal people in order to bring them into this place so that they can hear even more of this message. And I think maybe that's some of the lesson to be learned also from this story, that this message is for everyone and that God is willing to go through extra steps and eliminate barriers that are preventing people from getting to be a part of hearing this message. And so the disciples work with God in that way and say, all these other people are going to perceive and put these barriers upon you so that you can't be in this part of the temple to hear God's word. But we want you to be a part of this. We want you to experience this. So we're going to take away that barrier and and we're going to have you come in with us to Solomon's portico to hear this message, to stand, to walk, to be part of, of God's kingdom, a thing that you may have felt barred from in the past because of your condition from birth. And again, uh, these interactions, we saw it in the story of Pentecost in Acts 2. We see it here that the people who are there are continuous, they're filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. And, and obviously they're filled with wonder and amazement by the fact that this miracle happened and this guy who was lame can now walk. But I'm also wondering how much they're filled with wonder and amazement that God continues to break down barriers in order to come to his people and so that his people can come to him. He says, I'm not going to let these things interfere or get in the way of my message. That's why I sent my son is to break down these barriers that have been constructed that keep me from you. I want to shatter those. And so God's willing to do miracles so that we can be part of his kingdom, so that we can come in and enter into a more sacred space and a more holy space. And and that gets even more impressive um, when when we get later on in Acts and we see the fact that that God shares a vision with Peter that allows that barrier between Jew and Gentile to be shattered, which is just like world revolution type moment that Gentiles are a part of this too. And that's a cool thing. Um, definitely for me being someone of Gentile birth, someone that if I were in Jesus time before Peter's vision, I may not have gotten to hear this message yet, but now because of all this, because of all that God's doing, I get to hear the message. You get to hear the message. We all, can hear the message, we all can receive and accept the message.